Um, good lord, we're running long. Um, I told you this was going to have to be a two-part episode. Welcome to the PlayEd Podcast, where we explore cultivating connections through play. Good morning, everybody. This is the Playhead Podcast, and I am your host, Laura. Last week's conversation proved to be more than enough for one episode, so we've gone ahead and split it into two, and now we return to the conversation Chris and I were having about adapting role-playing games for younger children. Okay, so I'm not even sure that I've actually answered your questions. Well, I, I feel you, like I'm roaming all over the place and not are giving you coherent all, answers. You are, but that's fine. Um, because I think that the, the, the core point is concrete is a very important element to making it work for younger players. That if you have any resource management, give them an object that helps them track it, not just a number on paper. And that's a good rule for life. I mean, I have to do that at work all the time. When in doubt, make it concrete. Draw a picture. Make the abstract apprehensible to the people who aren't seeing what's in your mind. Mm -hmm. In fact, I had a person who I knew by way of my Star Wars fandom... Uh, she also uh, runs a game, and one of the things that she did as she was building this is she created things like she made a treasure chest for her players so that when they discovered treasure, she had things to pull out like, you know, coins that are this color represent this kind of money. Mm-hmm. Coins that are this color represent this money, which is of lesser value. She had some, you know, paste jewels, and that way she could hand out treasure and then you had a little pile of of the hoard that you had got yeah. that she could have. And that, that it made it concrete. Everyone loves props. As a teenager in New Orleans, because we had Mardi Gras every year, we had doubloons and we had beads. We had mm-hmm. the Mardi Gras throws. We used those. Yeah. And we didn't think anything of it. It wasn't putting on costumes and silly voices and doing a kind of amateur theater. Although I had friends who did that by way of role playing as well. Um, but we would augment what we were doing abstractly with some concrete things. So make the abstract concrete. For really little people, draw out the maps. Keep the maps simple. Give them tangible, tactile resources they can play with. And don't throw all of the rules at them at once. Most of those rules are optional. And follow the rule of cool as far as if they want to do something that's non-standard. Just make a judgment call and roll with it. And I think that one of the elements that we touched on that really could apply to just about any game and is a good application for life is that your interesting challenge might be there unbelievably frustrating. And that's because there is a comfort zone where you're perfectly content and happy, but you're not challenged. Then there is a challenge zone. And that's where you want to push into where there's just enough obstacle That you get pushed out and you try a little more and you expand your abilities and you learn. Yes. And you learn in the challenge zone. Outside of the challenge zone is the frustration zone. And you shut down. And you will not learn anything once you hit that. So you need to be keeping an eye out for, are we starting to get meltdowns? Does everyone need to take a break? Yeah. Is this a layer of complication that's just too much to handle and we need to pull back? That Taking a break is a really good point because something I definitely do with the group of 20, especially since most of them are little, it's probably about every 
half hour or so, it's like, okay, we're going to take a five-minute break. You guys go run around outside. And it's boys, girls. I mean, it's, it's, it's a big group. A couple of the older teenagers, they go hide in a corner and they read. Okay, that's fine. You want to be antisocial? You're free to be antisocial in my home, so long as you're not rude. You want to be little and you're full of energy and sitting at a table is about the most difficult thing you can do? Fine, go run around for 20 minutes. And so give younger players that opportunity to move. It's great for giving people bathroom breaks anyway. Yeah. It also makes sure that younger players have that, you know, you're you're building an attention span. Making them stay at a table and engage for 20 minutes about the length of an average children's television show is probably the most you can expect don't get frustrated. That's where you give them a five-minute break. Yeah. Go. Do something very physical. Take the foam swords out into the backyard and reenact the battle that you just played with dice. Yeah. And then come back in and get ready for the next set. Yes. Um, listen to them. Like, I I key in on how engaged are the littles. Who's asking me if they can use the bathroom? Who's asking... How often are they asking me if they can use the bathroom? How are they signaling boredom? And this is something that teachers learn to pick up on because you have to feel your audience. Actors learn to do this too, but they don't learn to do it in a classroom setting unless they're also teachers. Running a game for a large crowd, whether it involves kids or not, I mean, I've run games for tables full of 20 adults. You have to follow the same rules. You're going to have some who are really engaged and some who are on the edge of engagement drifting off, but you've got to find a way to pull that table together and get them all involved. Or you've got to hit reset and you give them a break. And you give people a chance to leave. Mm-hmm. Especially since boredom can quickly turn into agent of chaos. Yes. Yes. Because when when players get bored, they decide to break things just to make it more interesting. That I think that's a natural human trait because I've seen it again in workplaces. I've seen it in sports teams. I've seen it in... Uh, and I've certainly seen it at gaming tables for 30 years. Yeah. Um... So, why? Why would you play role-playing games? Okay, starting with, they're fun, but they are a little more work than them, and sometimes they're a lot more work than a board game. Um, board games at least come with the tactile pieces. They come with the board. Um, why would you play a role-playing game? What does a role-playing game offer that a board game doesn't? Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things is that while board games have a certain amount of social interaction and we've talked about kind of comparative uh, competitive versus collaborative games and and how all games really have kind of a mix of collaborative elements and, co- and competitive elements um but a role-playing game requires another degree of social interactivity beyond a board game okay um in a board game you take a pawn and most board games, those pawns are fungible. They are perfectly balanced, uniform, fungible tokens. You can play the, 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 the blue meeple, or you can play the green meeple, and it doesn't matter. In a role-playing game, what character you take on and decide to contribute, that contributes something unique to that gaming group and that adventure the same way you as an individual and unique human being contribute something unique and individual to the world around you. No one can replace you. You are not fungible. 
You sh you're not fungible at your job. You're not fungible in your family. You can't be easily replaced. And if you are gone, whether through death or absence of travel or um, you know disengagement due to depression or illness, the world is different without you involved in it. Mm -hmm. Role-playing games offer that same in microcosm. Because here you have a safe area where you can experiment well with, well, what if I don't cooperate with the group? What if I go off on my own? Okay, you go off on your own, you fall down in pit trap. Whatever. Something happens. The, the party doesn't fare as well in a challenge without you as it did with you. And you may not fare as well without the party. Correct. And I'm a big fan, as I've said in other episodes, of finding low-cost ways, especially for young people, but even for adults, to experiment with making decisions so they can make bad ones. We learn from failure. But we learn from failure when we have the opportunity to reflect on it, conclude some lessons out of it, and then elect to do something different the next time we face a similar situation. So I can think of... A couple of really distinct incidents uh, with our current gaming group of kids where we saw this in action and it we had some players who were newer to the game and there are there are a couple who I would describe as occasional a agents of chaos but at the beginning part of it had to do with the fact that they were new to gaming and most of their experience within a fantasy setting was books now we are huge readers. We have a library in our house. It's like wall-to-wall -wall books. And we and read piles all over the floors. We're the sort of people that when we have a little money, we buy games and books. If we have a little leftover, we'll buy food and clothing. Yes. But and and one of the things I love about playing fantasy role-playing game is it's that it's a it's an entry point to saying Great, you like this? Now let me show you my entire shelf of fiction that you can read that will help inform your imagination and build this world out with ideas of possibilities. Fairy stories and classic pulp fiction and some of the high fantasy and so forth. But, but you were saying. But our, our particular players, they had done some of this, but the reading that they had engaged in had been in worlds which were what one would describe as low magic. Very low magic, very dystopian, very nihilist, very modern novels. The, the, the trappings were pseudo-medieval and there were dragons and whatnot. It's a popular fantasy series, but they were all written in the last 20 years or so. And the important part for this one is that magic items were rare. Scarce. And so... One of the things I will do, especially with newer players, is I will give them a low-powered magic item. Each of their, their first characters will get one, and they can, you know, will it to the success of characters as they die. We tend to have a pretty high body count in my games. Um, character body count. I haven't lost a player yet. Yes. This is actually an important side comment that with our games... You don't want characters to get too players to get too attached to their characters. You want them to make sure that there's some distance, the recognition of you are not the PC. And so we'll have them roll up several at a time. So if one dies in a dungeon heroically or otherwise, they've got a okay, well, I guess I'm moving on to this character that I will now be playing and we'll figure out how we roll them into the game. But you, you hand them off, you know, interesting boots that let them walk on the ceilings like spiders or or perhaps a dagger that get, ha, that has a little bit more punch than the average dagger. Things yeah. like that. So minor stuff. Well, 
these new players not really understanding kind of how much magic was available in the game world I was running, because it's not the sort of thing that I, you know, sit down at the table and say, this is a very magic-rich world, and, you know, you'll, you'll be able to find furnaces run by, you know, fire elementals, and, and you know, uh, magic carpet rides you can are, are available for, you know, five bucks a, a, a trip and that sort of thing. Um, I, I don't do that. I just we sit down and we start playing because for me getting new people boots on the ground doing something in the game is the best way to initiate new people in. Right. You don't want a long preamble like this particular episode is turning into. Um LA way, LA by way of Omaha. Um so they decided that that the goal of the game was to take the magic items from the other players' characters. So they were, like, trying to stab the other PCs in the back, and they were trying to, you know, push them off ledges and take their stuff, and they wouldn't help them when they got injured in battle. And I finally had to sit them down and say, okay, look, there is more magic items in this in this imaginary world than, than you can conceive of. And you'll find them by doing these things, not get them by doing these things. So that helped a little bit, but it still required a period of adjustment. But I think you were building up to one particular story where we'd started off, some people had moved away, some new people had joined the group. Um, there'd been there'd been a change in personnel among the players. Yes, and we had decided that to that when you have a fairly consistent group. Rather than doing sort of one-off quest type games, you build what's called a campaign. And that's where you have a consistent world, you have a home base, you have an area where there's lots of different things to do, a big open sandbox of possibilities to explore. And we were going to get started. And so the opening game was an introduction of the characters to the home base city. They had not even managed to get past the gatehouse and the guards asking who they were before one of these new players had managed to not only have the city's guards not like him, but decide that this arrogant, rude character needed to be executed. Well, a little more detail is required there, because I'm not that capricious. No. Um, The player was being very obnoxious, but I tend to deal with player issues uh, person to person. I deal with character issues in game. I can have obnoxious players and I'll say, settle down or I'm going to ask you to leave the table. I don't punish the character in game because I'm irritated at a player. Correct. The player elected to have his character be very rude to the captain of the guard, be very rude to the innkeeper, and then try and steal things from the the, the pawn shop, which doubled as a magic item shop. He couldn't afford the thing he wanted, so he tried to steal it. Having learned to do this playing computer role-playing games where you go in and you loot buildings and that's an expected part of gameplay in most computer role-playing games. So, he tries to steal these things, the town guard is called, they find him, and they're not amused. They proceed to attempt to arrest him when he becomes very unpleasant to them and threatening, at which point they decide this guy's either highly intoxicated or a threat. So they conk him on the head and drag him off to the to the jail. And 
that particular character met an untimely fate and was hanged in the keep as a demonstration that this is what happens to thieves and hooligans. Who disturb law and order. Who disturb law and order. And that left a lot of the players shocked because they thought they had some kind of plot immunity. Well, no, if you come in and you're a disruptive jerk, people don't get along with you in real life any more than they do in a fantasy world. Just because it's pretend, you're not necessarily the hero of the story, and if you don't act like a hero, you definitely don't get treated like one. And so so there you go, low-cost learning... That particular player has matured a lot over the years since that incident. Still an agent of chaos, more often than not. Um, but it's it's been interesting. And, and some of that was that learning recognition of you have the opportunity when you're running a game to give them those low-cost things to discover impulse control matters. Yeah. Your- Delayed gratification, impulse control, politeness. Yeah. Just learning decent civility. I... I'll occasionally run into online rants about why aren't people civil or well-behaved. Well, they haven't taught, been taught to be. And while it's not my place to go around instructing other people's children how to be polite, uh, I try and enforce politeness from my own children. Um, but I also try to not interfere in the parenting that other people are doing. However, if you're at my game table, I expect you to be polite. You're under my roof. And I expect your characters to use an appropriate level of politeness for the game world. You want to play in a fantasy medieval setting? Great. That's a hierarchical world. There are lords who expect to be deferred to. It is not an egalitarian, radical democracy. You Uh want to get you you want to get worked up about political stuff? Not in my game. We're we're going to set that aside. We can talk politics over cigars and brandy with the adults. But in the game, I expect you as a player to learn and understand the rules of interacting, of having your character interact effectively with other characters. Mm -hmm. And if you elect not to, I'm going to use normal social mechanisms, police powers of the state. um, Ostracism. Ostracism. Ostracism is very effective. Um... And consequences from action. I remember that same player at one point, he wanted to do something, and it's okay, there are consequences for doing that. And he's like, well, I want to do this other thing instead. I was like, well, there are consequences for doing that. And in frustration, he just exclaimed, I want to do something where there are no consequences. And all the other dads around the table just kind of looked at him with an arched eyebrow, and I looked at him sadly, and I said, young man... There is nothing in this world you can do that does not have consequences. They can be good consequences. They can be bad consequences. They can be unintended consequences. But every action has consequences. Every choice has consequences. And I hate to say it, but the sooner you learn that, the sooner you can start recognizing how to deal with life. And I related that conversation to his father because it's one of those rare moments where I was like, okay, we're going to have a little honest chat about what real life is like. Father to son, even though you're not my child. And so I pulled his dad aside when I saw him a couple of days later and I said, hey, look, 
this is what came up in the game. Not complaining about the behavior. I don't think any of it's problematic. It's normal, high-spirited boyness. But this is what came up, and this is what I told him. So, lest it get garbled in transmission, I want you to be clear. These are the actions I took in this situation. He said, fine, no problem. Thanks for letting me know. Yeah. I think he also laughed a bit because he had had some similar conversations. He did, he did, because he's tr- he's been trying to hammer the same thing into his son's head for years, and his boy wouldn't listen to his dad, but he did listen to me. Sometimes that'll happen. You, you try and you try and try, and then they have a coach or a teacher who says the same exact thing, and then they come to you, Hey, I learned this thing today! And I said, did you? Did you, yep. But... So there you go. You've got low-cost ways to learn things like every action has consequences. It pays to be polite. Gather information before making a decision, but don't let analysis paralysis prevent you from acting decisively. Yeah, there's that balance that you learn. And then there's other things like you were pointing out earlier. Resource management. Understanding that resources are scarce. That's not your cue to go backstabbing your... Uh, your neighbor your neighbor uh, but it is a case where maybe cooperation and learning hey if everyone's simply looking out for himself we're going to end up in a bad situation why don't we collaborate figure out what we have among us so that we can use what we have if we're trying to work together as a group right. let us work together as a group to manage what we have right including things like we need to pull out we're reaching the end of our rope and we need to go before we have none left. Learning when to fish or cut bait, or more importantly, cut your losses before you're overrun, are really, really critical life skills. And there are few things besides war games and role-playing games that offer a way to teach that. You can't really cut your losses in a sporting event. Mm-hmm. You have to play the game through. And there's a virtue in learning to play through even though defeat is certain. And it sucks to play that last quarter of a of a of any game mm-hmm. when you know there's no chance you can win. But on the other hand, there's nothing like a role playing game for teaching you the sunk cost fallacy. Yes, that you can recognize. You know what? We may have been in here for an amount of time, but spending it any longer isn't going to recoup our loss. Right. It's just throwing good money after bad, good time after bad. Something that was a a part of the um. A lot of the early role-playing game experience um, is that not every dungeon actually had treasure in it. Not every encounter led to um, uh, benefit. And that's largely been lost in the more recent versions of the game. I think largely because of the influence of, um, of computer gaming. As, as I mentioned earlier, the cost to develop a computer game and computer game-related assets is very, very high relative to the cost to develop role-playing game assets. Well, it's, it's, it's fundamental to the recognition that time is precious. And so just as in a play or a movie, you generally don't put in a lot of insignificant detail. You have the Chekhov's gun rule of if you're going to have a piece of right. set dressing, it has to be important. You don't have the money for world-building. Right. So what happens in a video game is if there's a, a dungeon, there's going to be monsters and treasure in it, and it's, it's going to benefit the character. That's why they're sent on a quest to go in there. Because of the much lower cost, relatively speaking, of 
you know, whether I'm running modules that someone else has written and adapting them or I'm coming up with my own stuff inventively, there's a much lower cost to me having uh, what's essentially a dry hole. When you're prospecting for petroleum or you're prospecting for uh, gems or precious metals or whatever, you run across dry holes that you you do your core samples and you do your examination and all the geology says there should be something there. But when you dig and dig and dig, you still come up with nothing. And so maybe you need to keep digging or maybe you need to cut your losses, walk away and try somewhere else. That's an archaeology thing, too. And if yes. archaeology and, and t- tomb robbing, uh, tomb raiding, essentially, yeah. is very much where some of these ideas come from, that just because your your map says there ought to have been a tomb or an ancient city in this place... Doesn't mean it's there. Yeah. Um, that being the case... I can put dry holes, I can put dungeons that have already been looted, or that are false leads, or treasure maps that the characters have that are not true. Mm-hmm. They're inaccurate. I don't necessarily, I don't do that with the really little kids. I don't do that with first-time players. As they grow in experience and as they grow in skill, then I can layer those false leads, red herrings, confusing mysteries, plots, and political elements of within the game world into the game if the players find that enjoyable. And I can just sort of bait the hooks, and if they never bite on them, fine, I don't have to go develop a whole bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I'm a computer game developer, if I bait a hook, I better have something behind it. Because if somebody bites on it, they're not going to wait around for nine months while I code, debug, build the assets, score the music, QA, and then push out to a release. Mm-hmm. You know, that development cycle is radically different. I did think of one more difference between the way most computer RPGs are coded and the way the um, games that we play work that does teach an important lesson. When If your first experience with an RPG was playing something like Final Fantasy... The way your character gains experience and thus grows in strength is fighting monsters. And every monster you fight gives you a little bit of experience point that allows your character to level up. And a little bit of treasure. The way that experience points work in the games that we've been playing, it's the treasure that is typically how your character gains an experience. And so there is a value in not necessarily fighting every monster you meet. Correct. And... What I thought was an interesting takeaway, and it's frequently a big, big paradigm shift for for new players to realize this, is that the game worlds that we set up don't necessarily reward, you know, shoot first, ask questions later. Yeah. There is a benefit to figuring out and understanding what are the actual winning conditions? What are these encounters rewarding me or punishing me for? And realizing that this is a place where you could theoretically go through a dungeon without fighting a single monster and yet still come back having benefited from the experience in a game point way. Yes. You find what you need. When you encounter the monsters, if you can parlay, if you can talk your way out of situations, you still win. And that recognition that not every encounter is a fight, I think is actually a big lesson to learn. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. You're right there. 
Um, and it's one that that I have not seen the newer... A lot of the newer role-playing games are much more heavily influenced by computer games. Um, and so they don't really have that as an element of normal gameplay. Mm-hmm. Um, I've dealt with players who prefer some of the newer rule sets and role-playing games, stuff that's come out in the last 15 to 20 years, who get upset if a player at the table tries to parley with monsters or tries to, through stealth and guile, secure treasure without a frontal assault. Um and I think it's very important to, to, to teach kids, and I try and teach even my adult players, that frontal assault isn't always the best way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, we, were, we were actually just watching Treasure Island with the kids and talking about it, and, and that there's, there's the attack on the, the, the hut. Um, and the pirates just do a frontal assault. And yes, they've got the cannon until it gets disabled, but it doesn't really work out well for them. It's eventually stealth and guile that gets them into the hut and gets them the treasure map they want. Stealth and guile are important, and you don't always want to go charging into the muzzles of the guns. Mm -hmm. The charge of the light brigade is not, wasn't a good thing. Tennyson wasn't praising the charge at Balaclava. And trying to give people children, adults, a safe place in which they can learn lessons like that is where I really think a role-playing game can shine. Mm-hmm. So, circling Bay back to our sort of original question of adapting for younger players, I think if we were going to sum up, choosing a game like some of the earlier editions of Dungeons & Dragons um, is our preferred starting point um, simply from a standpoint of it's a lot easier to simplify um, and strip back some of the game elements and then layer back in. You want to choose something they're interested in. Then so, that's probably a good So, point. like, if you've got a kid who's interested in dinosaurs, uh, I don't know of too many role-playing games that involve dinosaurs, but I know of a rule set that uses, like, plastic dinosaurs to kind of give a war gamey feel where the dinosaurs fight each other. Um, I know of a game called Cave Master, um, which has a kind of Neolithic theme where you're Stone Age hunter-gatherers. And you can play it like kind of straight historical, um, what's the uh, Jana uh, Owl books? The Clan of the Cave Clan, Bear. Clan of the Cave Bear type stuff. You can do it like that, or you can do it like 20, 000, what is it, 20 million years BC or, or that really pulpy Barbarella era. Yeah, I mean, you can... You, you've got some play within the rules and you can say, okay, you know, if your kids are really into that, they can be, you know, cavemen with dinosaurs and, and, and whatever. Something like, like the Ice Age movie. Yeah. All you right. Know. So whether, whether, you know, think about you know, what is their favorite thing and build that around. If you're, if they're into superheroes. There are plenty of superhero role-playing games. And, ad- and again, adapt it down with the rules of make it as concrete as possible with your youngest player's don't expect them to to map. Do the maps for them and teach them and be very, very clear with your verbal cues. Make sure that you are reading your audience. Give them plenty of opportunities for breaks. And then I think the biggest advice I would give on the, on the part of anyone who's trying to manage that group, besides keep your paperwork in order, um, 
the biggest advice I would say is recognize that players are going to do things you don't expect. And so expect the unexpected and be ready to roll with it with that yes and. We've had friends who went through detailed, painstaking work to build a campaign only to have a character decide to attack the prime villain in the opening monologue. And because the guy running that game didn't handle the situation well, he decided to roll the damaged dice and the the prime villain got killed before he even finished the monologue that said it, it ruined the, the whole story arc he had imagined. I remember looking at him saying, dude, you weren't planning on a role-playing game. You were trying to write a novel. All right? Don't, don't. A lot of people think, try, uh, there are a lot of people who say that role-playing games are like interactive novels. They can be, but I have not found those to be fun role-playing games, and they really don't work with little kids. Yes. Little kids will be agents of chaos. Novels do not handle agents of chaos well. So... Be prepared that your job is not to try to write a novel and have them be characters who populate it. Your job is to give them a playing field. Yes. And roll with every element that they add in and be prepared for that. And just be ready to give them the concrete things that they need and use it as that opportunity to say, you know what? The physics in this world may work differently. There may be magic, there may be superpowers, but you're still not going to be able to get away with being rude, and you're still going to have to work with other people to meet a common goal. All right. I think on that note, we need to wrap this. I'm, I'm hearing the natives getting restless. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, if you have restless people that you have been thinking of playing with, and you enjoyed our conversation about uh, adapting role-playing games down to a younger audience, uh, please, we would love to hear from you. You can write to us at playedpod at gmail.com. You can like and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at playedpod. You can uh, like our Facebook page at playedpodcast. So please write to us. Tell us your thoughts. We love hearing from, from all y'all. And until next time, thanks for listening. Take care. Bye. I don't think we really got into sort of the benefits of role-playing games, but... I'm thinking we just keep recording. Okay. And I'll edit it into a, a multi-part. Multi okay. Yeah. All right.